I'm a touch thick, so if my voice gets deeper and deeper and deeper through the message, you're welcome. <laughs> um, you can blame whatever bugs going around for that. Um, I want to start off today uh, giving you a picture for where we're going. Um, uh, normally, when I do messages, and particularly in this series, I kind of like to build my case and then, uh, and then do a big reveal at the end. But I want to give you a picture at the beginning um, for where we're going. Uh, for about five or six years, before I went to seminary, I did mission work. And I did a lot of work in Russia. I did work in Venezuela. I did work in Brazil. And I did work in parts of Africa. I was a, a church planter in those areas. And it was great fun. And, and if you come to my office, you'll see works of art from different countries. Because I love to collect that. Because it kind of helped me remember the trips and help me remember the people that are there. And this picture is one of those pictures that normally hangs in my office. And, and, and let me tell you why I love this picture, because it represents something that happened to me when I was in Africa. Uh, one evening, we were gathered together for worship. And also, just so you know, this, it's made out of banana leaves. So that's not wood, it's banana leaves. Um, and it is um, uh, two... Uh, um, national, and honestly, I can't remember what country this is from, either Cameroon or Zambia. That's where I did my work, and I should have written it on the back, but I forgot. That's awful. Um, um, uh, and, and they're taking the gospel to, to huts there, and that's why I love the picture, because that's a lot of, of what we did. But, but there, was, there was one night where we were gathered together, and we were uh, worshiping at a church. And when I say church, I want you to picture a cinder block building about the stay about the size of half this stage, right? And, and, and cinder blocks on the side and then a corrugated tin roof uh, as, the, as the roof. And we were gathered together worshiping and we were singing a song that was known in multiple languages. And so a lot of times when I was in countries and, and I was participating in worship at various churches, they would sing songs in their language, which I didn't know. And so I would just sit there. But every once in a while, there were songs that crossed Boundaries, And so I would sing it in English as they were singing it in their language. And that's what happened here. And, and there was another team there too. And so it was this great mixture of people. And it was just one of those moments in worship where we were all singing and you could just, there's just moments in worship where you're just, where you feel, and there's no other way to describe it, but you feel the spirit of God's presence in a very real and tangible way. And that happened at that moment as we're gathering together worshiping. And it was so powerful, I had to open my eyes to see what was going on. And what I saw, I think, was a little picture of heaven. Because I saw people of different colors, of different nationalities, worshiping the same God. And in that moment, when I saw that glimpse of heaven, here's what I thought, and here's what we're gonna see today is this, is that heaven is colorful. Now, I don't mean like bluer skies and greener grass colorful. I mean skin color colorful. I mean nationalities and languages colorful. Because today, that's what we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be talking about skin color, we're gonna be talking about race, and we're gonna be talking about church and those things. Now. Don't think that it's lost on me that when I look out over this congregation, I see mostly one color, right? Asheville, I'm just gonna go ahead and say this, Asheville is the whitest town I've ever lived in. When I lived in Texas, 
and would go to Walmart, every sign had two languages on it. It had English and it had Spanish. My best friend was from Mexico growing up. I got introduced to chorizo and eggs at the age of seven. Right? That's the environment that I grew up in. Then I moved to Jackson, Tennessee, which is an hour away from Memphis, which Beth Moore came and did a conference there. She said she was never coming back until the segregation issue was dealt with in Memphis. That was in this century that she said that. And then I moved to Asheville. Don't think it's not lost on me that I see mostly one color. Here's what I hope happens. I hope I'm preaching about a fellowship Asheville three years from now, four years from now. I hope that one day, and and I hope it's one day soon, we will be able to look across this church and see that same glimpse of heaven that I saw in the middle of Africa. Now we're in, and I think today too, today's message will be particularly important for those of us with white skin. Right, because I'm gonna address something that we all think, and I'm gonna show us how dangerous that is to think in the world we live in. We're in the middle of a series called Can I Say That? And that's what we're doing is we're taking common thoughts that we all think, uh, at least I think it is. And what we see, and we're running that common thought through the grid of scripture. And what we see when we do that is we often end up with this scandalous statement that's biblically true. And today, the thought that we're gonna run through scripture is this. It's I'm all right. As an evangelical white crowd, oftentimes we think I'm all right. And here's why that can be so dangerous for the world we live in. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the most dangerous thoughts we can think because here's what else is implied with that. If I'm all right, you're all right. And the fact of the matter is, the world we live in isn't all right. On multiple levels, it's not all right. And so what we're gonna do is is, is I'm gonna tell you how this plays out a little bit. Right, because here's how this, if I'm all right, you're all right, plays out. And I hear these statements a lot, and listen, I said them. So I'm not pointing a finger at you. You know the thing when, I, when you point a finger at somebody, there's three pointed back at you. Like, like I've done this. And I, I think it mostly comes from a place of kindness. But what we're gonna see is that it's actually unbiblical because here's what I've said and I would imagine these words have come out of your mouth too. I don't see the color of their skin. I'm colorblind when it comes to race. I see humans, not different humans. You see, I think these comments mostly come from this place of kindness and compassion, but what we're gonna see is that the Bible asks us to do something completely different. Now, we're gonna start off um, in Genesis, and then we're gonna go to Revelation, and here's what we're gonna see, because we're gonna see the Bible calls us to not be colorblind. As a matter of fact, what we're gonna see is that the Bible tells us we can't be blind about anything, Our job is to see as God sees. And so what we're gonna see is that heaven is colorful and the church needs to be colorful too. 
And like I said, we're going to start off in Genesis and go to Revelation. Uh, we're not going to do all of that in one swoop. You will be able to have lunch today. All right, we're going to hop. We're going to start in Genesis and then hop over to Revelation. And in Genesis, what we're going to see is we're going to see humanity gather together for this picture of unity that is bad. And there's no other way to describe it. And what's crazy about this picture of humanity in Genesis is that it looks really good. Everything's going to be unified except the most important thing. And then we're going to jump to Revelation and we're going to see a better picture. We're going to see a picture of what God asked us to do. And so if you would, you would go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's on page 7 in that Bible because it's at the very beginning. Or you can download the Bible app um, and click on events and click on Fellowship Asheville and we're there. And as you're finding your place, let me catch up to you to where Genesis um, 11 Uh, where that is in the story of Genesis. Um, You know, the first part is creation and Adam and Eve. And and when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve in that world, he said that Adam and Eve were his best creation. That they 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 were very good and they were his prized possession. And then you also see in Genesis very quickly that things go wrong in that garden. Because God told them, you can enjoy everything in the garden. Every fruit, every tree, everything in the garden except this one. And you can't eat the fruit of this tree. Now you can climb on this tree. You can can take shade of this tree. You can't eat the fruit of this tree. And what is the one thing that they wanted to do? Eat the fruit of that tree. And they did. And that's when sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, it created this separation between God and man that had never been there before. They had always been together. They had always been in perfect harmony with one another. And God would show up and they would talk. But now there was this division that they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. And so God, being the God that he is, gave a solution. And he covered their nakedness. They had tried and they did fig leaves, but fig leaves dry and they crumble. And so their attempt was futile at best. And what God did is he gave us a picture of what's coming because he sacrificed animals to cover their nakedness with fur because another sacrifice was coming. But they had to leave the garden and have life outside the garden. And so they had kids and those kids had kids. And <coughs> excuse me. Oh, that was gross. Um, and those kids had kids. Um, I just guaranteed Nick will never use this mic again, though. Um, uh, those kids had kids, and it created this people group. And, and, and as with any people group, there were people who did evil in that people group. And that evil began to spread, and that evil actually grew to a biblical proportion that needed a biblical solution. Enter Noah and the flood. And God again dwindled. Uh, humanity down to one family and that family grew and had kids and had those kids had kids and those kids had kids and to Noah God promised something and gave him a command he promised he would never flood the earth again but he also gave a command and this is what he told Noah to do with his descendants to spread over the whole earth to be fruitful multiply and fill the earth in other words he told Noah when you have kids and your kids have kids and your kids have kids spread out This whole world is yours, spread out. And so, again, this family turns into a people group and they still have one language, one common language. They're one people. 
And here's where we pick up. I should have turned to Genesis. That would have been helpful. Good thing it's easy to find. All right, Genesis chapter 7, 11. There we are. All right, so chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they, what does that word say in your translation? Settled there. What did God tell them to do? Spread out. And what did they decide to do? Settle. Look at verse three. It says, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, I think is how you say that, for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so what was their fear? Their fear was spreading out over the whole earth, exactly what God had asked them to do. And so they settled together and they had brick. And I did a little research. I had no idea what bitumen was. It's actually like a tar asphalt type thing. And that's what they used for mortar for the bricks. And so they could actually make solid structures. And what we see here is that when they settled, this is, if you are going to define unity, this is the picture of unity. It is one people one language, and one mission. There is no better picture of unity than that. If you took any organization and you said, this is how you define success, they would shoot for that. But what was their mission? Their mission was to settle. Their mission was to build a city. And their mission was to build a tower that would do what? Reach to the heavens. Reach for God. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. See, they wanted to do things their way. They didn't want to spread. They wanted to settle. And in their minds, this was unity. Well, here's what we're going to see, is that unity without God actually creates disunity with God. That if you try and pursue unity, and God's not a part of that equation, it actually creates disunity on a level that nobody's comfortable with. So let's look at God's response to this. And by the way, this is Hebrew humor, right? If you are a rabbi reading this next verse, you would laugh out loud because they they have decided to build this tower to reach to the heavens. Look at verse five. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. Now, notice the words, the Lord came down to do what? To see So here they are working with all their efforts to create this tower to reach to God and God can't even see it from heaven, it's so small. See, see, that's the Hebrew humor in it, right? And it's this great lesson on how we, as humans, when we try and fix the problem that Adam and Eve created, when we try and build a bridge to God, from God's point of view, it is a couple of pebbles laying on the ground. And this is what they tried to do. So look at what God does. Verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
In other words, their ability to disobey with one people in one language and one mission, their ability to disobey would take them to proportions that nobody would be comfortable with. And God already promised he wasn't going to flood the earth again, so we can't do that. Right? Look at verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so what God did is he moved them from one language to multiple languages. He moved them from one location to multiple locations. And what we're going to see as this sermon plays out is this. They sought for unity without God. But what we're going to see, actually, is that unity is God's work. Unity is God's work. See, this dispersion, this disunity wasn't a punishment. I know it kind of feels like a punishment, right? That, that they're, they're, they're doing their thing and God comes down and says, all right, spread out. But what God was doing was in kindness and mercy. And he was taking their ability, our ability, to do evil and retarding it for as long as he could. And that's the kindness and mercy of God because when people try and be one without the God who created them, it ends in an evil place. Anytime you see societies and cultures try and create unity without God being in the equation, it ultimately ends in an evil place. And their evil, their, their desire to accomplish this without God, and even worse, against God, against what he said, that was their evil, seeking unity without God. And that's why being colorblind doesn't work. Because for real unity to exist, we can't be colorblind. We actually can't be colorblind in any way, right? For unity to exist, we must see as God sees. For unity to exist, we have got to see as God sees and to see what God sees. That's why he gives us his Bible. Because what we're gonna do, this is where we're gonna jump from, from, from Genesis to Revelation, because we're gonna go to God's house and we're gonna see what he sees in his house. And what he sees in his house means that we get to see it here in our house. That's what we're shooting for today. And so go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to see what's happening in God's house. All right, there's a lot that happens between Genesis and Revelation, as you can imagine. Uh, those people disperse all over the world and and, and then the Bible picks up following one of those people groups, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And their story unfolds, and, and, and as their story unfolds with God, uh, God gave them the task to show the world what a relationship with God could look like. And, and at some points they did good, and at some points they failed, just like us. But what they also had is they had the promise of someone who would fix it. They had the promise of a Messiah that they knew would come and fix what Adam and Eve broke. Enter Jesus in the Gospels. 
the long-awaited Messiah, the one to fix what Adam and Eve broke. And he was sent to repair the relationship between God and man. He was sent to be the bridge between God and man, that it was no longer our efforts, or never could be our efforts. They were all like, like these towers that we build to heaven that God can't even see from heaven. That's how useless they are. Jesus is the only bridge from us to God. And that's what he kept telling people. He said, you have a relationship with me, you have a relationship with the Father. We're one and the same. And when people believed him, when people placed their faith in him, they experienced a relationship with God that was completely different than a garden or than a temple. Because in those places, in a garden, in a tabernacle, in a temple, you had to go to this physical location to worship God, to experience God. But what Jesus said before he left is, is I'm going to send one who will comfort you and who will be with you. And he even said before he left, I will never leave or forsake you. And so when Jesus came, it changed everything. It moved into this personal, intimate relationship with the God who loves you and who created you. And instead of having to go to a place to experience him, you get to experience this ongoing, abiding, all the time, every place relationship with the God who loves you and the God who created you. That's what Jesus did. That's our gospel. Instead of us reaching up to God, like Genesis 11, God came down to us. Now, those who who followed Jesus, he ascended into heaven and he gave this command to go and go tell people about who I am and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so they did and they told people and they told people and they told people, which is why we're sitting here in actual worshiping that same Jesus. It's why I could go to Africa and worship that same Jesus because those disciples did what Jesus asked them to do and the disciples after them did what Jesus asked those disciples to do. You're sitting here today because somebody told you about Jesus, which means you can follow a line of people all the way up to that original crew that heard Jesus say go. Like that's why we're here. And one day, you will close your eyes for the last time. And when they open again, when you're able to see again, when those eyes close, the next thing you see is the face of this Jesus. And you will experience grace and truth and freedom in a way you didn't even know you missed. And John, in the book of Revelation, gives us a picture of what's gonna happen there. And that's where we, we pick up in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. It says this. So this is John. And what John got to do in a vision uh, is he got to visit God's house in heaven. He got to visit there so he could tell us what it's gonna look like and what it's gonna be like. And so, so this is John writing. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude of people that no one could number from, get this, every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, this is kind of like I experienced in Africa, only bigger, much, much bigger. People of different colors in different languages engaging in worship. In other words, what John saw was what I saw in that little church building. 
They're not all singing in Hebrew. They're not all singing in some ethereal language that we don't know. They're singing in their language. Which means you're going to be worshiping the Lord in English. And there's going to be someone next to you worshiping the Lord in their languages and worshiping the Lord in their tribal language. And we're all going to be worshiping the same God. But if you notice, even though their, their, their nationalities were clearly established, their languages were clearly established, they did have a couple of things in common. What were those? They have robes that are white, and they have palm branches. And palm branches is a symbol of victory. When a king would come back from battle, they would hold palm branches, which is why when Jesus entered for the triumphal entry, they had palm branches. And so it's a symbol of victory that they are worshiping from a place of victory. But they are also all wearing these white robes. And so what are these white robes? Let's, let's look and see. Jump down to verse 13. It says, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, so it's in other words, John is there, and somebody that's there, one of the elders, turns around to John and asks him a question. It says, who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you know, which is uh, Bible speak for I have no clue. I'm actually just visiting, right? Like, like I don't know what's going on here. So if you could enlighten me, that would be great. So listen to what the elder says. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So here's this, this what seems like an oxymoron. That these white robes were made white by being washed in blood. But it was the blood of the lamb. It was the final sacrifice. It was Jesus. So what is the one thing besides the, 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 the palm branches that these people have in common? It's the gospel. The one unifying thing between all of them is the gospel, which is why they have the victory that they have. You see, that unifying thing that I experienced in Africa as we were worshiping was that same gospel. When we were there singing worship songs in our languages, and I got this glimpse of heaven, it was because the only thing we had in common was the gospel. And what we see here is that diversity can really only find unity in the gospel. That's it. And as the church, we're the ones who proclaim that gospel. You see, in church, that's why this is important. That's why we can't be colorblind. That's why we have to see as God sees. Because if heaven is colorful, the church should be colorful too. Because it is in heaven. And so it should be here. Y'all, this is important. I don't use the word should a lot, right? Because there's a lot of guilt and shame with that word. But I want you to know, if this is what's happening in heaven, it's what we shoot for here on earth. You see, the gospel we believe, the gospel that we carry really is the only way to find unity. 
And so what do we do with this common thought that often leads to our colorblindness? What do we do with the thought, if, if, I'm, if I'm all right, you're all right? We have to understand this. As we look to heaven, as we look to God's house, this is what we see, is that every race matters. Every race matters. Now, I'm not done yet. Because if every race matters, then every race matters to the church. My mic is sliding off. There we go. Right? If every race matters in heaven, every race matters in the church. And if the gospel unifies this and nothing else can, and if the church is the one that is to proclaim that message to the world, then it means the church should be a place where every race matters and every race is seen. And the church, like fellowship, I'm not talking about the church. I'm gonna keep it real personal. Us, we, we get to be a place that can be a glimpse of heaven because the gospel unifies us. And now that's true, even though we're a mostly white congregation, we're still very diverse. There's still a lot of people in this room that if we didn't believe the same gospel, if we didn't worship in the same place, our paths wouldn't cross. The gospel we already believe is a unifying force. But that same gospel can do more. And here's, I've got a couple of ways that it can do that. You see, the first, and, and this is on all of us, we've got to live out the gospel we believe. Right? We believe that Jesus died for us. We believe that Jesus gives us this good and right and intimate relationship with the God who loves us and the God who created us. And our job is to live that out in the world that God has placed us in. And if that makes no sense to you, there is a place on the connect card that says, I'd be interested in knowing more about a personal relationship with Jesus. Check that, put your name and email address on it and put it in an offering box and I will follow up with you and we'll go have a cup of coffee and we will talk about that. Because I would love to help you understand that type of relationship. But for those of us who have already done this, for those of us who have already said yes to Jesus, here's what the gospel looks like in relation to race. Here's what it looks like in relation to church. Is this. If every race matters, right? If any race is mistreated, then that race matters the most. That's what it means. Church, it means comfort was never our calling. Another way to think about it, going back to our all right statement, if the gospel is the only place, uh, the only thing that can actually unify a diverse group of people, if the church is the place where that gospel is proclaimed, then here's what it means for our all right statement. If you're not all right, then I'm not all right, is what it means. In other words, I can't go on with my life as normal if you can't go on with your life in a normal way. Now, I know you're, there's lots of questions going through your head. Like, how do I do this? What does this mean? Well, if true unity is found in the gospel, and the church is the place where God breeds unity, then let me tell you the first, and actually I think the most important thing that we can do is to pray. 
Now, if your first thought is prayer seems so small, then you probably don't know how to pray, to be honest with you. If you think prayer's not enough, then you probably don't know how to pray. Because prayer is the biggest thing that we can do. Pray for those that are mistreated. Pray for those in the world that are mistreated and that are seen as property instead of people. Pray for those where where poverty is so fierce that the only way to survive is to be evil. Pray when you see people missing from this congregation. Listen, God placed us here in Oakley for a reason. And Oakley is a very diverse community. I would love for this church to be as diverse as the community that it's in. Pray for that. The next thing you can do is connect. Maybe God has put you somewhere that's colorful, right? Maybe your work environment is colorful. Maybe your school environment is colorful. Maybe God has you there to connect the people you're with to Jesus and maybe to connect them to church. Connect. In the first service, we had a representative from the Bear Foundation here to talk about foster care. Maybe God is calling you to make your home a colorful place. Connect. And then for a small group of people, maybe you can do this and go. You see, this one's a little more out there. But maybe we have someone here and you've been hearing God's voice that you are to go. Maybe you're part of the voice that makes this vision and revelation come true. That you're one of the voices to take the gospel to a people group, to a nation that it's never been. Y'all, listen, when I did mission work, here's the truth. We played that Katy Perry Perry song to release the kids. And y'all know why we do that? Um, Because they make a lot of noise going down that stairwell. And it's open all the way in here. And what happens is when they're making noise... And somebody's up here doing announcements. Y'all are all turned around trying to see this army of kids that are apparently coming back in. So if we cover it up with music, y'all stay with us. And you bop a little bit, which is kind of fun. But here's the deal. In these huts where the gospel has never been, they know that song. They know Katy Perry's name, and they've never heard the name of Jesus. Right? I was in these huts. It was before Katy Perry. And you know what I saw? Bottles of Coca-Cola. You know what they had never heard? Jesus. Like literally, I was, how much time do I have? All right, I was working with the Fulani people, which is a nomadic tribes people. And so uh, they are all over Cameroon and we were sharing the gospel with this village. And uh, it's a matriarchal village. And so as the the, uh, tribal mother responds, so does the tribe respond. And to actually get the gospel to them, we had to have multiple translators, right? The person sharing their testimony spoke in English. It was translated to one language, which was translated to another language, which was translated to Fulani so that they could understand it. And so I noticed as this guy sharing his testimony and talking about Jesus, it was Jesus, 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 Allah, Allah. And so I stopped him and I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. I said, let me do a little test. And so they, he's going to do a test. He's going to do a test. He's going to do a test. And I said, 
Nathan Sheets was the guy sharing his testimony, which, by the way, you can buy his honey called Nature Nates at Stam's. That's him, which is fun. Um, he was sharing his testimony, and I said, Nathan, say Jesus. Just Jesus. Jesus. I said, okay, translate it down. Jesus, Jesus, Allah, Allah. I said, okay, we got to back this up. I said, they don't even know who Jesus is. And so then we backed it up and talked about who Jesus is. And this little old woman who the entire village followed stood up and she said, I knew it. I knew Allah couldn't do what you said this Jesus can do. We believe. And if she believed, the entire village believes. Maybe God is calling you to do something like that. If so, trust me, say yes. Because you might be a voice that makes this picture in Revelation come true. Because there are tribes out there waiting to hear the name of Jesus and they don't even know it yet. Church, last week I volunteered over at Oakley Elementary and it wore me out. I realized why I stopped teaching elementary school. We did this carnival and had five, we had like five inflatables and carnival games and it was so much fun. And let me tell you, Oakley is a colorful place. And those kids are adorable. And they are sweet, good kids. I hope, church, that as we get more invested in this community, as we get more invested in the lives of people here, fellowship will look like Oakley Elementary. Fellowship will look like Oakley because when it does, it looks like heaven. Let's pray.